Hello and welcome to the Unnamed Automotive Podcast. My name is Sammy Hajasad, and with me as always, you know who it is, my good friend, fellow automotive journalist, Benjamin Hunting. Say hi to the people, Ben. Greetings, human listeners. Greetings to everyone. If this is the first time you're listening to our podcast, Ben and I are a pair of automotive journalists, and you can find our work all over the internet. Ben, why don't you tell the listener where they can find some of your work? You can find some of my work at Haggerty, at Driving Line, and at Motor Trend. And you can find uh, some of my work at autotrader.ca, as well as Nouveau Magazine, and TechSpot, as well as EV Pulse. Uh-oh, I've gone too far. I've like, There's too many things I talked about. Ben, let's just start talking about cars. What do you think? Okay, but just before we start talking about cars, I wanted to mention that uh, this week there's been kind of a momentous change in the world of automotive journalism. I know some of you out there enjoy Super Street. It's a magazine that um, has been around a very long time covering the compact performance scene well, since the 90s. And it, it's it's an icon um, of of automotive journalism. It lost its print version last year. And as of this week, it's losing its editor. It's longtime editor, Sam Dew. Uh, a great person, someone I've worked with for years. But even before we worked together, we were friends and uh, had a lot of had a lot of fun together, and someone I really respect in the business. And he's moving on to bigger and better things. He's going to make an announcement soon, but uh, he just recently revealed to the world that this is his the, the end of his time with Super Street. He's been there since 2011. So I just wanted to wish Sam well in his in his next endeavor. Whoever gets him is going to be super lucky to have him. And kind of yeah, it's end of an era for Super Street with the print. Uh, side of the operation gone and Sam leaving too. So uh, a lot of big changes um, for sport compact performance fans. Absolutely. Uh, I agree with you there. And you've written some pretty cool stuff from over over the years. Um, Why don't we get to what we were going to talk about this week on our podcast. Ben, why don't you take it away with the uh, crossover you've been driving recently? The crossover? Well, so yeah, it's... You know, Sammy, this is a vehicle we've talked about before. Uh, It's one that we used to vilify regularly on the podcast as being something that you would probably only buy if you had no other options at your because of i don't know you were on a very tight budget or maybe you were looking for something that was got kind of a screaming deal and you got a great great offer cash back financing whatever the, mm-hmm. and of course i'm talking about the Nissan Rogue uh this is kind of a it was a placeholder crossover for Nissan that sold really, really well because it was very affordable, even if it wasn't the most up-to-date in any department. It had decent space inside, it drove okay, but it didn't have a lot of technology. Sammy, you drove it three, four weeks ago, I think? Yep. And, uh, and I drove it when it first uh, came out as well. And you were, this is the 2020 MN generation, as I recall, you were overwhelmed by how improved the vehicle was. Yeah, so I want to know now. Now that you've driven it, was I was I exaggerating or was I off my rocker here? Like, what's this? What, what was your take on it? I think this is the people. People also sometimes think I'm a little bit too enth- enthusiastic with my with my reactions. They're telling me to tone it down all the time. So well, I think this, this is an the, opportunity for me to tone it down or not. It's the one time where you've been on the ball. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, I think that the uh, so I spent a week with the 2021 Rogue, and I have to say it drove better than that two series Grand Coupe I had the week before. Wow, that can't. That's not true. That can't it was be true. It was definitely Sammy. It was so much more comfortable. It mm. felt like a more upscale experience than the BMW. And it might not have been as quick, and in fact, that's kind of the only real problem with the Rogue. 
But everything else about it, I just enjoyed driving it more. And I was so surprised because I was really ready to just kind of write it off as yet another crossover in a field of crossovers that are all starting to just mush together in my mind. But the interior, I I had a a high-end trim level. Yep. The interior was quite nice. It's well laid out. Uh, The infotainment system has been improved. The gauges look good. Everything about the truck was easier. The truck, the crossover was easy to use. Uh, We're in the process still of moving apartments and we moved a bunch of boxes in the Rogue. A lot of stuff fit that I really didn't think was going to fit Mm. with the rear seats folded. And it was just generally overall a pleasant experience. And I think it looks pretty good too, which is not something I would have said about the previous Rogue. Okay, well, I'm I'm not as sold about the exterior design of this thing. Um, and I want to discuss something that you mentioned. You said that you drove a pretty high-end trim. I also drove the top trim model. I'm curious to know what what we should be expecting when we drive a lesser-than model, because I, this is kind of curious that they keep giving us these higher-trim models. I know they want to show off their, their upgraded um, cabin, which is a significant improvement over the last-generation model, but what do they have? Like, are they hiding something with these with these... Um, it, it, that's in their lower trim models. Is it louder? Is it uh, is it just that much cheaper? I mean, I'm I'm curious to see if there's something that we aren't expecting. Um, I don't. On those I don't clubs. think so. I think that because the weakest link in the vehicle is the drivetrain. Okay. And that it's it's is it a carryover, Sammy? Yeah. So it's 184 it's, horsepower and torque, or wait, well, 81 or something. Yeah, 81. So it's a two and a half liter engine, and it comes with a continuously variable transmission. But when I say weakest link, I don't want to say I don't want to imply that it's something you should avoid because of this engine. Mm-hmm. It's perfectly fine. Yeah, have, it, it has no that part has almost no character adds no character or removes any character from the vehicle. Right, that's a, like, that's a really good way to put it. It's it's an anonymous engine that does the job. Uh, I didn't even really notice very sometimes with a continuously variable transmission, you notice that it's not shifting gears and the, it, it feels kind of like it's buzzing or holding power in awkward places. It really didn't do that. So I think that if all this to say is I think if you went to a lesser trim level, you would have a similar experience in terms of how the vehicle drives. And I don't think it would be louder. I don't think it would be buzzier. I just think you'd have less gadgets and gizmos to play with and you'd probably have more plastic in the interior. If that's the only penalty, you're still getting a very comfortable to drive and useful crossover at a reasonably affordable price. And and again, that's always been the Rogue's calling card, except now it's a worthy competitor to vehicles like the CRV and the RAV4, I think, or even the Subaru Forester. So, I mean, that's that ends up being the most important question to ask about the this um this Rogue cuz you're you're right. First of all, the old Rogue uh, totally a perfect uh, is is an okay car for somebody who doesn't care about what they're driving. It gets it's an, it was an appliance. That was it. Um, it got the job done for a reasonable price. And from what I understand, they could move them um, pretty easily. There was no waiting times on them. So now we're we're talking about a product that is competitive in in all of the key areas that the top products in segment are. Right, like it's spacious. It's got a right, great cabin. It's fuel efficient. Um, you think it looks good. That I think that's a selling feature for some people. Um, but now I think it's now skewing a little bit closer to the um, to the top trim. Uh, sorry, the top products in the segment in terms of price. It's not as much of a bargain as those ones as it once was, and I think that's important to bring up. Um, is is that okay? They've got a they've got a stronger product now for sure. 
but will it sell as much? Right. I think it, I think it might sell a little less if the people who were price driven before are no longer able to afford the rogue when it comes time to re up. Mm-hmm. But I don't know whether we're going to stop seeing all the cash back offers and financing deals that we've seen on the rogue. Just I don't think they're going to disappear overnight. So I'm not sure that Nissan's worried about that exactly. Okay, and it is actually it is a good uh, feather in, in Nissan's cap, cap because they've they've actually like re- remodeled a, a good chunk of their lineup. The new Sentra, Altima have been um, have seen some pretty good refreshes. Um, and now the the Rogue, I think, is the is like the highlight. It's almost like the keystone of their lineup. They've, if they can get this right, it feels like they can really attack other parts of the of the automotive industry as well. And what's interesting about the Rogue is like it's it's actually if, for people sitting up front, it's a little bit smaller than the one before, but you get more room in the rear. And I think that that's you know for parents who are dealing with car seats and getting kids in and out, I think that's an important difference. Mm-hmm. I think you could have stand, You can always stand to lose a little bit of legroom in the front, um, and uh, the doors open wider as well, mm-hmm. which is again when you're loading kids in and loading stuff in, it makes it much simpler. And I noticed this too when I was loading in uh, boxes. Like I had the seats folded down, and I wanted to get stuff out the sides um, instead of crawling over everything, and I was able to do that. Interesting. Um, I was also impressed by the like the amount of technology you mentioned like the digital gauge cluster uh there's a head-up display there's a really big infotainment um screen there's a wireless phone charger it seems like it's got a little bit of everything i even think there's a wi-fi hotspot in the cabin is in the car as well there's um, a they, they, and there's two actually touch screens there's an eight inch and a nine inch i had the nine inch um mm-hmm. it's the platinum version of the of the vehicle it comes with that standard but it's optional i think on the sl which is just below it. Mm-hmm. Uh, otherwise, you get an 8-inch, which is still good. Um, yep. What I, It's similar to what I had in the Titan a little bit before that. I, it's easy enough to use. Uh, the screen can feel a little crowded at times on the home menu, but it's not confusing or anything. And That's ultimately the most important aspect of any kind of technology you have to use while you should be concentrating on driving. So you agree with me. This is a product that is in that, um, that tier of RAV4, CRV, uh, Forester, Actually, it seems like the, the, the higher-end tier of this segment are, is actually getting pretty crowded. What else is a good product in this lineup? The the Escape and the CX-5 should be probably mentioned alongside those, right? Yeah, the CX-5 should probably be up there as well, for sure. Um, so that leaves some products like um, the Chevrolet, what is it called? The Equinox? The, the Equinox. Uh, and the Tiguan as the like doldrums of the segment. Tiguan is definitely doldrums, but there's other vehicles that are decent. Or like dregs the, of the segment, yeah. The, the the Hyundai and Kia both have competitive options. The Tucson and the the Tucson and the sport in the Sportage or the Sportage, however you want to pronounce it. I don't think those are competitive. I I think they're I think they're competitive as if you're not looking for a top tier vehicle, I think they're fine. Mm-hmm. Um, I would take either of them over a Tiguan, no question. <laughs> yeah, and just from a from a price to features perspective. Yeah, you know, and also the drivetrain in the Tiguan is clearly overmatched. <laughs> oh, I hate it when we talk when we start talking about one product and it turns into a into a beating a beatdown of some other random product. Well, Volkswagen <laughs> Volkswagen honestly does not make a competitive SUV. Um, it's funny because their their Atlas has been popular with with set with buyers but i don't think the critics have been as as enthusiastic about it which means that they've got a fan base that loves these products right 
I, I think loves is maybe overstating it. Uh, Volkswagen's kind of not really doing great in North America, and they keep, uh, what's the word, downsizing their lineup. Um, mm. We're getting fewer and fewer vehicles. I mean, the Golf has been pulled. I'm uh, not sure if it's coming back to the United States. The Passat is gone. The replacement for the Passat, the Arteon, mm-hmm. that's going to go soon. So I think that they maybe are in a transitional phase in terms of determining who their customer really is in Canada and the United States. And so let's bring this back to um, Nissan. As I mentioned, they've refreshed a bunch of their products. Even you drove uh, an updated Titan a short while ago. They're actually infusing um, their lineup with with something new in some way or another. And that seems like a, a bigger a bigger deal than what we're seeing at other automakers that have felt a little stagnant, right? Well, I mean, Nissan kind of let things hang on for quite a long time. And when was the last time that the, um, I can't remember the name now, their midsize crossover? The, the Murano. Yeah, when was the last time that the Murano got some attention? That's true. I would say that's probably two years ago, three years ago, and wasn't even that much of a, of a refresh. So it's it's you know it's it's about that time for Nissan and it's good mm-hmm. that they're seizing that opportunity. I think the Maxima has also been hanging around for quite a long time. Yeah. Um, and a- again, Maxima is not a vehicle that many people buy, so it's not as big a deal if it if it's a little older. But uh, anyway, yeah, it's it's nice to see signs of life at Nissan. It's nice to see a popular product get better uh, instead yeah, of just... instead of being like the same old, which I think is what we got with the Rav Four, right? Exactly. Um, you know, I, I, is Nissan making a mistake by not including an '80s era digital time display somewhere in the in the in the Rogue? Maybe. I mean, yeah. I, I'm not a strategist, so I can't give you that answer. But all in all, very impressed with the Rogue. Definitely a vehicle I would recommend people test drive if they're shopping for a crossover at that size. And that's not something I would have said last year. So the future of the Rogue, though, there has to be something there because the, me and you have both honed in on the biggest weakness of the vehicle, which is the motor. Um, and it's not like Nissan is is like a company with poor with poor engine choices. They've got like this whole new technology, this variable compression technology, um, these VC turbos. Remember, they, they had this in the Altima in the United States, um, and it was also offered in the Infiniti QX50, and we've seen not much about it since those two products. The, the the rogue seems like a perfect fit for this kind of thing. Well, you know, we don't know what's going on behind the scenes with that motor. Mm-hmm. We don't know what reliability is like, what real world, real world fuel mileage is like. Well, and, yeah, we do know what real world fuel fuel mileage was like. <laughs> it was not great. <laughs> and also how customers are reacting to it. So right. they have this tried, tested, and true two and a half liter four cylinder that they can dump in the in the rogue and know that it's gonna you know do what it's always done. And until they have the money to put um, something a little more modern uh, or a little more powerful, I don't see anything wrong with keeping this engine in there. But it's, it is strange that, like, the CRV doesn't have very many engine engine choices. You get that 1.5 turbo in, like, think almost every, every model that they offer. Uh, the RAV4 has the hybrid and the Prime, and I was really enthusiastic about the Prime. I thought that was a per- pretty good example of the – the best example of the RAV4 – um, engine options in this segment are, are are weird. Like the 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 Forester doesn't have any engine options; it just comes with the two point five. So is is Rogo is the Nissan Rogo okay K with just having one engine? Oh yeah, I think it definitely is. Okay, all right, cool. Anything else you want to add about this thing? Anything you want to talk about? No, I think that I think that wraps up how I feel about it. Did you use ProPilot Assist at all? I didn't. Um, I wasn't really. I don't like using it in city highway driving. 
mm-hmm. and that's primarily what I was doing with the rogue. So, I mean, it's not a suite of technologies that I tend to pay much attention to unless I'm on a longer road trip. Right. No, I I, I understand. Cool. Um, I'll had this conversation my way now. I drove a brand new um, Audi e-tron sportback which is a slightly different body style to the e-tron that you drove in the middle east i think a year ago do you remember that ben i yes it's all coming back to me (laughs) okay good Um, that's the one that i got stuck in the dunes was that you who got stuck in it yeah i got stuck and then i had to dig it out with my hands and uh i i kept thinking like I hope there's no scorpions. Like I had, I had no idea what creatures could be living in these sands. And then there were these dudes who were like watching on a hill from far away, laughing at us for like a good forty minutes. And then they finally came and helped us. Yeah, I'm glad they finally came. That was good. Yeah. Uh, don't make fun of people until uh, you have, uh, unless you have a way to help them, right? Sure. Whatever. <laughs> that's the pl- That's the message of today's. That's the feel good message about today's podcast. <laughs> Um, the Sportback is a is a slightly different body style. It has that coupish um, rear uh, quarter uh, look that you would call it, uh, kind of like an A7 on stilts. It has pretty much the same powertrain. It features 215 miles of range, which honestly is not a lot um, coming from a 80 uh, 95 kilowatt hour battery. Say say the range again. 215. And that's not far off. Sorry, two hundred. That's not. Sorry, that's not far off from what the original Etron had as well. I no. right? like. It's like the same. Let me. Just yeah. Sure. So that implies that weights are very similar between these two models. Yeah, uh, Etron, right? Yes. Uh, the regular Etron actually has four more miles of range, according to the EPA. Oh, okay. Wow, that's a little weird. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I remember when the Etron came out, so. Um, the European range was like a lot better than the North American range. Am I mistaken thinking about that? Because it's like a laxer testing situation. I love and, and that. This... I, I can't believe that a test, a whole test environment can result in that much discrepancy. Um, well, it's, it's how the vehicles are driven, right? Yeah. So the North American one tends to be less generous from what I understand. Right. And, um, all these European automakers, they, they tend to get a haircut when it comes to range once it's sold in North America. Even, even Porsche with the Taycan, Taycan, I never say it right. It was the same kind of deal, but they're, they're all very similar right around this, the range that you just mentioned. He's just like, just over 200 kilometers, uh, 200 miles of range. And that's not, honestly, it's not competitive, man. Like, uh, if we talk about a Tesla, I don't know, a Model Y, I think, would be a decent comparison. Um, well, it, 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 that thing is so much more – it gets almost – it gets over 100 more miles of, of range, right? Now, you, you and I are both very range-oriented, and this is how I approach the idea of an electric vehicle. Because in my mind, I want the electric vehicle to replace – a gas vehicle in how in terms of my lifestyle and in order to do that it has to give me enough range so that i'm not co- excuse me so i'm not constantly worried about getting trapped somewhere sammy do you feel the same way when you're looking at these vehicles um i have become a little bit more um confident in the availability of fast chargers where i'm where i'm traveling to one of my big the biggest problem in my life is that I don't own a ch- I don't have a wall charger at home. Like I don't. I live in a condo. Um, I I don't have Humble a charger. Brag. I I don't have a charger in my garage. It, it just isn't there. So as a result, I have to end up re- relying on public charging infrastructure. I don't think this is the 
this is the average use case scenario for an electric car buyer. I think most electric car buyers have a place to charge either at home or at work, and I have neither of those things. So as a result, I'm, I'm relying mostly on the infrastructure, the public infrastructure of um, fast chargers. And I have been fortunate enough to find one um, very easily. The fast chargers in particular are pretty good. Um, according to uh, Audi, and I will back up most of these most of these figures here, it will take 30 minutes to um, recharge the vehicle from 0 to 80 on a DC fast charger, which has a, what, 150 kilowatt charge rate. So the that would fa- give you something like 170 miles of range, right? 180 yeah. miles of range? Yes. And I found only 50 kilowatt hour, um, I'm sorry, 50 kilowatt chargers, and th- that ended up uh, doubling essentially the the time needed to charge uh, to 80%, which I still found pretty convenient, and I could usually make it from one charger to the other. Um, without any concerns. Now, the big problem that I have with this is um, range estimates. That means what the car is telling you how much range it has and weather uh, or temperature is the other big deal to talk about when it comes to EVs. So why, why why does temperature play such a role in determining range? Like what's the difference between, I mean, in a gas car, I know when it's colder, my engine is going to use more gas, right? So I think as much as 30% more gas. But since since I can get more gas easily, I don't really notice it. But in an EV, it's a different story, right? Yeah, it's a completely different story. And the more – so items – first of all, you have to keep the battery at the ideal temperature or else the um, the, the electricity doesn't flow through it at, a, at an efficient rate, I will say. Uh, and that's a problem. So additionally, every every feature that you um, – like say the, the HVAC system, like the heating or cooling elements of the car will also sap additional – um, electricity from the vehicle and that means that i ended up losing a good chunk of of mileage just by driving it in, in winter weather uh i i lost i would say 10 percent, at least 10 percent of range um closer to actually that's over 20 closer to over 20 percent of range 31 miles I lost out of the top, out of the full end range of the vehicle, which and is not, will, which is not good. And leave, that is, would leave that would leave the total range that I was using it to 184 miles, which sounds anything below 200 sounds like a joke, right? And and also, I know a lot of the um, energy saving modes in an EV, they if you use them, they really cut down on what your heating system is capable of doing. Like that's one of the things that it, it cuts out right away. Yeah. So you end up having like a less comfortable experience to get a few more miles of driving. And I'll tell you, like when you're when I'm sitting there driving this vehicle, every time I turn on the the heat in the in the in the winter, my range dropped significantly. I suddenly lost like 10 miles of range. Boom. And then I would just like alternate between turning it on and turning it off, turning it on, turning it off and ended up extending the range by a a decent, you know, more than I would have expected by keeping it on the whole time. And I don't think that was a very smart way of letting the car explain itself to me right like that just it just felt like i was watching the car trying to figure out how to be how to be um how to explain to me how much range it has and i was skeptical of skeptical of it this whole time i thought it had um a a, a specific amount of range when i charged the car it was it was warmed up um it had a different range than i was expecting and then once I got on the road, I had that range that I was expecting again. So it's so weird that the expectations while you're driving suddenly change. And this is the thing that Audi has to um, address in future versions of this car. The the calculation that it, the, the algorithm or the calculation for this range 
maybe a bit too conservative, which I think is a, is probably better than being uh, too like over promising range and suddenly running out. But it needs to be more accurate. Like that's the biggest difficulty with these EVs. I drove that Soul EV um, uh, again actually recently, and it, the way Kia calculates its range was more on the on the nose with what I was experiencing, what I was driving, and with the um, the HVAC settings as I needed them to be. It seemed to have a lesser impact. In terms of real world driving, what was the experience like? Oh man, I actually really enjoyed driving this car. Um, it has. But how did the range? How did the range impact how you drove it? Oh, totally. Um, I, I drove it. Uh, I, I, I didn't go. Like this car is pretty capable. Like it's a very fast vehicle. It has over four hundred horsepower, over <laughs> nearly five hundred pound feet of torque. It does zero to sixteen five and a half seconds. It's a fast, fast vehicle. Did I use this? No, because I knew that every time I put my foot down on the on that throttle or go pedal, whatever you want to call it, accelerator. Um, <laughs> go pedal. Um, every time I did that, I would lose range, and I'm already at a at a loss here with this vehicle. I'm already behind everything else, and I'm always being I'm already being conscious because uh, I did have to take um, a long trip in this vehicle. Um, it, it just that impacted the way. I wouldn't say it made the the trip stressful. It made me a little bit more tempered in, in my um, use of – almost more engaged, to be honest, more focused with the driving experience and maybe not in the best way. So it's kind of like when you're younger and you really couldn't afford gas yeah, and you'd have to like carefully plan out all the driving you were going to do in a week because you knew you had only so much gas money to get yeah. you through. Absolutely. So that's Absolutely. in your luxury, expensive luxury SUV. <laughs> You have to adopt a similar mindset. It reminded me more of like if you've ever driven a, a vehicle um, in the specifically in the snow um, without snow tires or like there, it, that just was not set up to deal with the condition or gone off roading with a vehicle that was not set up for that sort of exp- that condition. And you are hyper aware of everything that could potentially go wrong with this car. Um, you're you're like almost sweating just driving, keeping it straight. Uh, you you have a little bit of that fear factor with the vehicle um which is a shame because the rest of the car is actually pretty good it has a really high-tech cabin um it it has this two um screen infotainment system that i think we've we've probably chirped on before uh the hvac system is controlled by the by touchscreen and so is the infotainment system and that's kind of annoying you have to press really hard on the screen to make it do something and then it like it nudges it makes like a tactile nudge back whenever you do anything bizarre um, anyways, it also has a really nice uh, digital gauge cluster and a head-up display. It's got a massive sunroof. It's pretty spacious. And then visually, if you look at it, it looks actually more like a compact, um, a compact car, like compact hatch, but with ginormous wheels. Like, I, I think these got to be twenty-inch wheels or something. Um, let me double check just to make sure that I'm not. No, it's probably everything has twenty-inch wheels. <laughs> It's weird, right? Like it, they, they, they're so you end up thinking you're in a, something that looks big, but is small, and then feels kind of, feel because of those big wheels also feels kind of big, but is also really uncomfortable because it's not soft like a it doesn't have big sidewalls like a an SUV. So, so if, in comparison to a similarly priced luxury vehicle from Audi that has a gas engine, oh yeah, you want I to mean, talk about pricing? This car is yeah. insanely expensive. Uh, I my model was the fully loaded model, eighty three thousand dollars, my friend. Oh wow, yeah. So so you could buy dozens of excellent cars for that money. 
I mean, even in the in the Audi lineup, you could be able to buy uh, a Q5 without an issue, uh, which features, I think, similar space and um, performance. Probably even, a, probably even a Q7 at that price. Yeah, for sure. Uh, I don't think the performance level would be there in the Q7, but you would probably get that with a Q5 or SQ5. And, uh, I mean, that also puts us in X5 territory, obviously, which is an ex- thoroughly excellent luxury vehicle. The X5, um, I think, at its best is, like, near $100,000. Okay. Right? Like, you need to get a really – like, I guess the V6 isn't that bad, but if you want the best – you you get an X5 because you want the best one. Right? I don't know if it's 100000 because you can get an X7 for, like, 100000 Another great car. <laughs> <laughs> so, anyway – who's buying this then i mean we've already we've just established that the range is not great it drives really well it's kind of strange in terms of the package that it offers size wise features wise Mm -hmm. and it's super expensive so is this someone who has to be a dedicated ev fan or is it going to appear to appeal to somebody who walks in the audi dealership and is like oh i'm open-minded enough to try an electric car and i will evaluate this based on its merits so, yeah, I think the latter is there. I, I think not really – they don't really need to be uh, – look, it, it does have a usable amount of range. When you're going on a long trip, that's where the – that's where the you have to accommodate um, the range of this vehicle. But if you're just going to work it back or – and as I mentioned, you have some place to charge the vehicle on a regular basis, you'll be fine with it. I think this is actually more for Audi fanboys than anything else. And I do know that there are a lot of Audi fans out there um, – and the e-tron plays into that into that position. Okay, so um, what's your final analysis on the e-tron? Is this something that someone should legitimately consider if they were shopping at the eighty thousand dollar level and needed a family vehicle, or would they be better served by any other gas-powered uh, SUV at that price point? Yeah, at this price point, you're better off with a gas vehicle, unless you are really diehard on the electric vehicle thing. That will work for you. Uh, or you need the latest and greatest Audi. The, what they need to do is realize how to better utilize that. It's a big battery. I, I don't understand how a 95 kilowatt hour battery cannot get range like this. Uh, can get range like this. We're, we're seeing more range out of the the Teslas. Um, I think even the Polestar has more range. Um, it, it is really unfortunate. I think Audi has like they're making it they're making it's like you know you've got the same ingredients to make something what is it you can make it and scrambled eggs out of an egg uh, scrambled eggs or an omelet right like and they're they're dropping the ball i think both are delicious i both mean, are I don't delicious. get that if you're I hungry don't get that, that <laughs> analogy at all what do you mean if you're hungry if you're I'm hungry anything at... will go wow so which just out of curiosity <laughs> which egg dish are you dissing here Neither. I'm just saying. <laughs> Your analogy is confusing. <laughs> Sorry, Ben. Sorry, you're right. What I'm just oh, saying man. is that they, they have the product. They have the the, the pieces to make something good happen, um, and they've yet to accomplish that. You know what? We make this criticism with GM all the time. I think we complain about what Cadillac does with the pieces um, that GM has around for them, and they just don't execute. And I feel like the e-tron is on the cusp of being a really solid product. But that range is going to hold it back for a lot of buyers. Do you think it's a software thing? Do you think it's like power management software? Yeah, absolutely. I think that's got to be it. Or maybe you don't need to put... I know it's a heavy vehicle with these big batteries. I don't think 400 horsepower and 490 pounds of torque is is necessary in a car, right? Like, do you... Is it needed? 400 horsepower? 
What would have happened if, if they, they if they kept it to three hundred? If they kept for eighty three thousand dollars, I think they true. do need to. You know, like that's the kind of thing where people are. Is and that's is that Canadian or American dollars? That's American, man. Oh man, so you know, at that price point, yeah, I want four hundred horsepower minimum. <laughs> I would be upset if it wasn't four hundred horsepower. But then, like, what if what if you have a, a trade off, like four hundred horsepower and two hundred and fifty two hundred eighteen miles of range, or three hundred horsepower and an extra, I don't know, seventy miles or fifty miles? No, I don't think you can do it. I don't think people will compromise on that. Because if you are buying the EV as like an accessory, like an eco-conscious accessory, then I think you're not going to drive it long distance. So it doesn't matter. You just want it to be quick and to show off with it. If, you, if you're buying the vehicle to use as you would any other daily vehicle, you're probably not going to – I don't know if uh, you'd be shopping for an $83,000 vehicle like this. I think you might be looking at other options that are not from a luxury brand. If you, if you have a more practical side to you, I guess is what I'm saying, you don't overpay for the Audi badge. Okay. So, like, in comparison, not that it's not, we're not comparing, I'm not comparing the two products directly, but the Chevrolet Bolt has 259 miles on a smaller battery. But it's also much lighter and a much smaller vehicle. Yeah, but... Much, much smaller. What I'm trying to say is, like, there, there's management. There, there has to be a way to, to balance what they've got here. A lot of performance and not a lot of range seems to be counter the mission of an of an electric of pushing an electric vehicle it feels like they they like here's what you want an electric car with with the audi stamp of like performance and maybe that's what it is maybe it was a marketing ploy i mean we're talking about a vehicle that's come out uh, two years after the original e-tron and is substantially the same vehicle Mm -hmm. so that kind of speaks to where development is at for audi in terms of evs right now that's not good yeah i mean why isn't it dramatically improved yeah, that's tough. Anything man. else? Anything else you want to add about the e-tron? I'm really I need to I, I need, not about the e-tron, but about electric cars in general. Um, oh, here, where, we, here it comes. Where no, where I honestly, where I'm living, um, I'm actually finding electric cars to be a worthwhile product. Um, even though, as I mentioned, I'm at a disadvantage for not being able to own my own charger. It is possible. Like it is definitely possible. The the grocery stores I use have free free charging, which is great. Um, there's fast charging in two very convenient locations for me, just a short drive away. Um, and it's somewhat affordable. It's, it's on par with a fuel fill up to, to use these things. So it it is surprising to see how accommodating the, these features, these, this infrastructure is. I know that people are really, and, and me too, I've always said when the infrastructure gets there, an EV, um, is worth looking at. But now that I'm like poking and prodding and finding myself within this infrastructure, it seems like it's making more sense. Okay. So like actually when seen from the inside Mm -hmm. and at the current level of EV penetration where you're not, you know, not everyone has it and you don't have to wait a million hours to get a slot to plug in. It's, it's, it's working out. Okay. Yeah. So far so good. And like I said, with, with the bolt and the soul, you've got these two pretty affordable, well, not pretty like affordable in comparison to an e-tron. But you've got really good performance out of these things. They chirp the tires in, like uh, right off the line. It's impressive. And that's kind of intoxicating in a way. It reminds me of like you know old, old sport compacts that used to mod the heck out of um, that could do really silly things. Okay, Ben, what else is on your mind before we close this podcast up? Well, there was, there was one more thing I wanted to talk about uh, on this week's podcast. And uh, we haven't talked about um, 
movie cars in a long time. And I know that if you're listening... And Star Car Face-Off? Is that what we're talking about? No, we're not going quite all the way there. If you don't like our movie stuff, feel free to tune out now and we apologize <laughs> in advance. But if you do like our movie stuff, I wanted to talk about uh, the Fast and the Furious franchise, Sammy. And specifically, I know we, we, we mention them a lot because it's kind of like a second religion <laughs> or a, a, even a primary religion for you and I. Um, but uh, I was thinking about... The good guy cars versus the bad guy cars in the franchise. Okay. And uh, specifically, I wanted to know whether there were – which movies had the cooler cars on the side of good and which ones had the cooler cars on the side of evil or government conspiracy or whatever stood in as the bad guys um, as the franchise kind of went off the rails towards the end. So, Sammy, do you want to just come with me and do a movie-by-movie movie look – at which cars were which and which cars were cooler? Okay, I'm I'm you're gonna you're gonna kill me for this. I'm gonna be called a heathen, but I don't know all the cars off by heart, so I'm getting a list uh, of some of the 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 top products in, or the top cars in, in each in each movie. Uh, let's start with the first one. I think that one's pretty easy um, to go through. We've got let's let me think here. Well, there's the there's the Supra and yeah. the Charger, right? And right. those are kind of the hero cars on the good guy's side. But they also had um, Dom uh, Dom Toretto. He he had an RX-7, an FD that was super cool. Yep. And uh, Brian Earl Spilner, back when he was still using his serial killer name, he had the um, Mitsubishi Eclipse. Yeah, that, that was pretty broke, neat. It got, right? Well, he didn't break it. It got shot up by uh, Johnny Tran's cousin. Right. Um, so those are, those are on the side of good. Those are some pretty cool cars. They had some lame cars, though. There was a... Jesse had a Jetta. Yeah, I remember <laughs> really? that. I remember that being like, why? And then somebody else had a Maxima, right? Yeah, and the Jetta was like, so it's cool. It's possible to make a fast and cool Jetta, but like the actual Jetta they used in the in the movie was like a two liter automatic, I think. The two point so, Yeah. So anyway, um, going moving to the bad guys for that movie, there was really only one car. It was the the S two thousand that Johnny Tran had, which is an and awesome car. So, but it's not enough. I mean, you can't overcome the the good guys with just one car. Uh, so, anyway, I think the first movie has to go to the good guys, Sammy. Right. I mean, how it's not easy to to, to take. Like we just mentioned, a really good fleet of cars from the good guys. So that yeah. that I mean, an S two thousand is good, but it's not like it's not a hero car in the same way like an FD RX seven is, or even that char- that um, Charger is. Right. And then you've got the Supra as well, which is now a uh, like uh, an iconic vehicle, so I, I agree with you there. What about so the, the what second? About too fast, yeah. Well, too fast, too furious. Uh, things are a little blurrier because um, it's Brian and uh, Tyrese Roman Pierce. Mm-hmm. Um, they end up driving. Uh, so this Paul movie Walker's has a car, lot of car, a lot of cool cars in it. It does, and and Paul Walker's car at the beginning of the movie is like an R thirty four Skyline, which is which is cool. But it's it's he doesn't get it very long. He doesn't have it very long before he's arrested, and then he gets to drive uh, a Lancer Evo yeah. that's provided by the government. Yeah. Um, and Tyrese ends up in an Eclipse Spider GTS, which is just not a cool. terrible car, not cool at all, absolutely terrible. But there's no real bad guy cars in this movie. The, 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 is it it's, a, is it's, a boat considered a bad guy car? <laughs> that's the thing. So, like, the, the, the drug-dealing dude, Carter Verone, the guy who's, like, the big bad for the movie, he doesn't really have a car. And they kind of race against these, I, I guess, um, people we're supposed to think are bad guys. No, there's, have, like, like, minions, right? Like, are they minions? They're not even minions. They're just guys that they want to have a street race against. They these were, guys they have were, wicked cars. 
They do. They have a pair of classic muscle cars. They got a Yenko Camaro and a Challenger RT. And they were kind of in the mix earlier when when um, Paul Walker and Tyrese were trying to win the job. They were part of the group that was trying to win the same job. But they race them later in the movie and they get those cars. So they end up owning them too. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> so... I so the good say, guy cars win. That's that's yeah, what happens. They have and, those cars, and, therefore they win. It, it really overwhelms how sh- how terrible that eclipse was. <laughs> you, you almost swore so hard on the podcast. I almost did. I almost did. I can't believe but, they put that generation eclipse, uh, eclipse in this, and not only that, but a spider too, which I think yeah. is like notorious for being kind of low quality. <laughs> I think so. I think that's being generous in describing that generation eclipse. <laughs> okay, um, so let's go into the into Tokyo Drift. First of all, um, the movie starts off with the bad guy driving a Viper, or the bad kid, the cool kid in class, right? Well, no, the, 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 yeah, the, the 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 mean kid in class is a Viper, yeah. but um, the the main character has a pretty cool uh, Monte Carlo. And I always thought that was – you never really see that generation Monte – it's like a 70 or a 71. You never really see that generation Monte Carlo represented on the screen. It had a big block. It had kind of like different painted fenders. It was clearly a project. But uh, the, the real action starts when – it really heats up when you go to Japan and you end up with that Skyline swap, the RB26 swap in the Mustang versus a 370Z. Was it 350s? 350z at that point. Yeah. Um, and we also get a, a couple of Han makes his appearance, first appearance in the franchise. With a he's got like wickedly modded out RX7, right? Like yeah, with the veil side kit. I always like that car. It's way over the top. I would not do it to an RX7 that I owned, but I'm glad that that car exists. You know what I mean? Right. That's a and, tough uh, one. That's a that's a really tough. Um, there's a lot of cool cars in that. But I mean, Han's a good guy. He's got the cool RX7. Uh, Lucas Black's character is a good guy. He's got the Mustang. I mean, the 350Z is cool, but it's and and the Viper's cool too. Although it's the worst generation Viper, um, but I think again, what good guys the, win. What is the best generation Viper? The, Second generation. And this was a 90, third or fourth. Ninety six to two thousand one. Last the best generation. generation. Last generation is supposed to be good. You've driven it. I haven't. Well, the the the, the best generation is ninety six to two thousand one, and then. That's the, the one, one we had photos of, uh, posters of. Yeah, and then the one that we have now, mm-hmm. the the most recent one, was probably the second best. Um, and then I would go with the first generation, 92, 94. And then I would go with probably the second to last generation and then the one in this movie. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I love that we also included a top uh, a ranking of Vipers in, the, in our yeah. ranking. It's of a Vipers. ranking within a ranking. Yes, Yo, rank- dog, we heard you liked rankings. <laughs> Nobody's listening to this at this point. <laughs> they, they tuned out. Okay, sorry. Let's keep going. Fast and Furious. Fast and Furious, 2009. So this is the weird one where they were racing through the tunnels, Sammy. Yeah. There's, Remember that? Are there a lot of cars in this movie? I feel like there aren't a ton of cars in this movie. There, There's not a ton of cars, and there's also not a ton of street racing. There's cool stuff like at the beginning, they hijack that uh, that tanker truck. Yeah. And they have a Grand National while they're doing that. And they have that cool kind of like custom-made tow truck that they that they uh, have um, to do that as well. Then, I mean, then rank, like, later we get like cars that are so custom they're barely like – Real cars anymore? Is that included yeah. on our list? Okay. It is. Well, I mean, at the end of the movie, too, they break Dom out of jail bus, right? Like, he's, yeah. like, in the desert. And they have an NSX and, like, a, a modified... Someone's drive. I don't... You never see who's driving the bandit 
Trans Am, but there's one of those. Yeah. Um, the the R34 Skyline comes back. There's a, a Chevelle for a little bit. Um, there's a WRX STI. There's a whole bunch of stuff that it, it's just neat sprinkled throughout the movie. The bad guys, though, there's like just one dude really who has a car that it's like a Seventy Two Grand Torino. Um, and then they have they make what's that? Well, it's it's a cool car, but like we can compare it. Yeah, we can compare it. They also have an F bomb Camaro replica. Uh, which is pretty neat, but none of, the, none of these cars really play a big role. They're kind of there for racing in under the tunnels and just kind of sitting in the background when bad guys are trying to look like bad guys. So, again, good guys win, Sammy. Okay. All right, let's keep going. We got Fast Five, which is which is the wildest of the movies. This is an easy one to do. Good guys win because the bad guys have no cars at all. <laughs> um, wh- hold on. Oh, yeah, that's true. You're right. Um, because I think this is the, one of the first movies we see uh, The Rock's character, Ho- um, Hobbs? Yeah, this is also the movie where there's a like a, a, a rotating cast of cars driving in a warehouse trying to be faster than yeah. security cameras. Yes. And and then there's they pick some chargers and they tow some safes. And this is because the, the chargers too. look like cop cars. Yeah, and they needed they needed to win these cars, right? Yeah, these cars in in street races so that they could they, they couldn't just buy them. But they this is the movie where they decided to not show us the racing. <laughs> yeah. They were just like, okay, time to race, and then oh, I guess we won because we have all these cars now. And then so they don't even really like, use them. No, it, it was a real disconnect from the rest of the franchise. So I, the less said about this movie, car wise, the better. So let's move on. Okay, Fast Six, Fast and Furious. Fast. This one has fast the six. coolest cars. It has some really cool cars. There's like uh, a lot of Euro stuff that we didn't get in the other movies because they went to Europe. <laughs> so um, we get uh, Alfa Romeos. We get an, a Mark One Escort, which is pretty cool. There's uh, a Ferrari FXX for some reason. Um, but none of this compares, Sammy, to the fact that there is a Chieftain battle tank on a highway yep. involved in a chase later on, thanks to Owen Shaw. Um, a, a villain who's completely over the top, but he also has a really sweet flip car. Yes, which is which was cool. And the Jensen sense Interceptor, which is like an iconic like your British car, is it not? Like a, it just stands out. Exactly, and he also had a DB9, an Aston Martin, and cool. and like you know, this is it, it was a, it was finally a chance for um, compared to the previous film, we actually had a villain who had something to do with cars, who had driving skills, and they was able to go up against the now band of superheroes, I guess, who are uh, making up the Fast and Furious franchise. So I think that in this movie, Sammy, I think the villain cars are cooler. I mean, the Charger was cool to see in Europe because it's it's just weird to do that. Yep. You know, like that seeing a Daytona with the big wing and whatnot. Um, GTR is, it, it made another appearance for Brian O'Connor, but like... Uh, I think that the flip car and the tank and the Jensen are just the cool factor is overwhelming. It's hard to beat an Aston Martin. We're talking like a James Bond mobile here. Come on. Uh, Fast and Furious 7. This one stands out to me because I only remember this like in um, Supersport or Hypersport, which is a wild looking car. Um, and and like no one owns it in the movie, right? Like yeah, it's, just, it's just, just in a room. Swipe it. <laughs> and they jump out of a like a, a building with it. They jump from one building to another, which is totally a thing that happens. Uh, I think that the bad guys don't really have cars. Yeah. Like, th- there's a Maserati Ghibli. There's an F-Type. Um, I think that there's a scene where, like, Dom rams the Charger into the into the Maserati in, like, this weird game of chicken. Yeah, I remember that. And, and the cars, they're just kind of background pieces. Like, the main characters, they go to race wars 
Um, they're they're driving muscle cars. They're racing against R8s. It's like it's just nothing to do with the plot of the film or the characters. It's kind of like remind you that hey, we used to we used to be a movie about cars. So here's some cars. Right. Just shut up. So like, I don't think anyone wins in this movie, man. I don't think I don't think even the the audience wins Aww. when it comes. No, but I mean, think about it, man. I remember there being a ton of cars, and I thought that was pretty cool. Okay, let's go. To, if you if you're that critical, maybe Fate of the Furious will help on your end because I remember this wicked uh, drive in Havana with these um, like what do you call them? Hot rods, essentially. Well, there's an Impala and uh, a Chevy Fleetline and a Ford Fairlane. These all like cars that were. I mean, Dom's Impala was like all you know resto modded and cool because it's Dom Dom Toretto, yeah. but. The Fleetline and the Fairlane were kind of like what you'd expect to find in Cuba, like cars that have been kept alive over the years using whatever parts they could. That that was a really cool scene at the beginning of the movie. Weird. Um, it made no sense with that whole whatever it was going on with the Coke can or something like that. I can't remember what the story was I don't there. even remember that part, so <laughs> I have to trust you there. Uh, but the, the, the other – there's not a lot of other automotive action in the movie until you get to the end where things are just absolutely insane and there's a nuclear submarine – that races a whole oh, bunch of Lamborghinis man. and Subarus and Challengers. I know and, and how the ice... this... you're going to vote for the submarine being the coolest thing in the movie. Look, the Ice Charger is cool, but the submarine is way, you're way ridiculous. cooler. And that's how we lose all of our 100% of the unnamed automotive podcast listeners by you calling if a, nu- a if... Russian nuclear submarine the coolest thing in this movie. If you like Sammy, find it objectionable that he pronounces it nuclear. <laughs> Or if you, like Sammy, feel that the the good guys should have won uh, versus the bad guys in the last Fast and Furious movie, you can get a hold of us and tell us that. There's a bunch of ways you can do that. You can go to um, our website, unnamedautomotivepodcast.com. There's a form there. You can fill in all all the ways we're wrong about the Fast and Furious franchise. Hit send, and it will end up in our inboxes. You can also find us on social media. Um, I am on Instagram, where you can find me at Hunting Benjamin. Whereas Sammy prefers the cesspool that is Twitter. He is at Sammy underscore Hot. Like you're laughing. Um, is there anything else we need to tell people how to subscribe? Well, if you- if they want to subscribe, how would they do that? Well, I mean, if they go to the website, unnamedautomotivepodcast.com, there's a bunch of buttons at the top. They can hit those buttons and they'll be subscribed. Or, you know, just search for us in your uh, podcast client, Podcatcher, and we'll be there. Hit subscribe there. That'll work. And, uh, Sammy, what are we? What are you going to be driving next week? Uh, next week, I'll be talking to you about the 2021 Lexus IS. Ooh, exciting. And I will be talking about the 2021 Jeep Wrangler Diesel. Very cool. Now that's something exciting. I can't wait to talk to you then, Ben. All right. Have a good week, everybody. Take it easy. Bye.